Welcome to season five, the final season of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. In this show, we've been talking to some real life experts on how they've been getting through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and still those darn feelings of helplessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we have been more than prepared for this moment than we ever would have realized. So let's get started and see what we can relearn one last time. It's Tuesday has a t sound. It's the 22nd, another t sound. And it's the year 2021. Lots of t t t t sounds. But it's leading me to the ultimate t sound, which is ta-da, which is how I would like to introduce my good friend, Kimmy Lee, who is joining us today on Tuesday, the 22nd at approximately 423 Pacific Standard Time. And Kimmy, I see, though our listeners and readers do not, that you are sitting in front of a beautiful lemon tree outside. It's it's the middle of February. People in Texas are just barely getting the power on and warming up. People in New York are still dealing with snow. How do you manage or how have you managed this last year to have so much sunshine? Do you feel bad? Well, it's part of this whole global warming situation where it should be rainy season. (laughs) Mm. It should be colder. And we Uh had a little bit of cold, a little bit of rain, but really not. So we're actually in a drought, I think, again, or about to be again, because we didn't have much rain. Didn't the drought just end on the West Coast? It doesn't. I mean, I think we need several years of rain to recover. So we had many years of drought. And so, yeah, anyway, so we didn't have much rain and it's warm and it was like 70 degrees today which is just a little But nuts. I mean, of, of all the years to have a, quote, drought year that doesn't have rain and cold weather, I mean, it's kind of serendipitous, no? I mean, it's, it's COVID. It's the pandemic. You, you, the preference is to be outdoors. The preference in terms of safety and um, lacking harm, but actually care is to be outside, to be able to be socially distant mm-hmm. like that and to have the, the sunshine around the vitamin D that you get naturally instead of those of us who are stuck taking supplements. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if there was ever... And again, if there's ever a good time to have a drought during a global pandemic might be it, no? I guess. I, I mean, I, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, let's be clear. Know. Early In the early quarter of this first mm-hmm. pandemic year, we also had fires because of this drought and lack of rain and weather. So the masks had multiple functions and we talked about that. We actually talked about your familiarity with the importance of like air and breath and air quality and masks as a uh, possible uh, remedy for some self-care with that actually came from these massive fires that were happening um, in California in particular before the pandemic, much like we have had hurricanes and flooding and, you know, um, whether that's in the opposite direction that has recently affected our, our friends and family and, and, and folks living in Texas and um, across, you know, uh, other places in the United States dealing with this massive cold front. So many things are taking multiple fold, showing us the intersectionality of all of these different issues that are just compounded and magnified with the pandemic. And that also includes 
you know, a couple of other things that I get to talk to you about, which are so exciting. Um, these are not great topics, uh, but your particular insight and work in the area um, is something that I am excited to get your perspective and your analysis and your thoughts on. And the first one that we'll start with is, you know, you're about to go on a break in two weeks. You know, we've spent months listening to you talk about making thousands of masks, um, distributing thousands of masks or organizing massive um, car marches and protests of sorts. And you're about to go on a break. Is that even a thing during the pandemic? Are people allowed to take vacations and breaks? Yeah, it just looks different. I mean, my family was like, where are you going? Why are you going? Are you leaving us? Are we the problem? <laughs> so, mm. uh, I mean, you know, being at home, uh, there's just things and you never really let them go. And so I think the idea of having a break from your own home is useful and people should take a break. So, I, you know, I think there's the break from work. And then there's the break from being at home. And I think that's also why people enjoy travel because then you get to step away from your responsibilities, the laundry, the dishes, everything that's around your house and not do anything, like really not do anything. So this break I'm getting, I'm going away just to a, a, I don't know if it's a cabin or a house or something, but it's something where I'm alone for a week. And so I don't have to worry about the kids. Don't have to worry about chores vacuuming dishes all that kind of stuff oh so now you're bringing up one of those things <laughs> that has been you know written about and and studied and be you know it has been studied but now it's really like surfacing as a as a narrative in terms of a learning from this last year which is that particularly parents and particularly um uh, cis women who are parents and um, struggling with the multiple jobs, if you will, some paid, some not, some recognized, some not, some given titles, some not, um, that it also happens to be gendered in our society, right? That just got magnified even more. Like who is that primary parent who, who gives care, who like does particular chores around the house? Like in many ways, the heavier burden has been on moms um, as parents versus dads for those families that have a mom at all and two parents and, and, and multiple generations and whatnot. And I guess what's curious, what I'm curious about is you did talk on this podcast about your family going on quote vacation, but you all just went to the car in the driveway and your youngest put up different pictures on the window saying, look, we're driving by the mountains. And I know that you've tried to physically go away to a new house and a new location with your family. So you said something that's interesting to me. You said people like to travel because it gives them a break. But I think that that's an adult issue. Kids don't like to travel <laughs> because they like breaks that they design themselves to freely yes. do nothing or sleep in their room all day. They yes. don't see traveling as like freedom. They see traveling as work. No, this is true. And so when we did actually go away with the children, they complained the entire time. So <laughs> there's that. Which meant it wasn't really a break for you at all. You just had a it different place where they were complaining. But I, but I do also have to respond to the... I think at least in our family, my husband or my partner, he's been really good about the food. Like he takes care of all the food, the shopping, the cooking. Like that's Isn't a that huge, nice? Isn't that huge, nice? that's, 
it's so big. So I want to recognize that. Like I don't have to do the cooking or the food. And so that's a huge piece. Um, But yeah, I think, I think it is the whole parent and the whole just adult having variety of response or feeling guilty. Like if you you can't just sit at home because you're like, Oh, that's broken over there or I should fix that. Or there's something that always needs to be done. So I think you can't unsee things anymore. You can't go on vacation. (laughs) And I forgot about that. Or I ran out of time for that. And yes, but to be clear, your partner and you have been sort of from the get go from before children um, and from having children when they were just babies have tried to have a relationship to the work be as egalitarian and as equitable as possible. It requires a lot of conversations. It requires a lot of saying things that maybe don't sound nice. It requires a lot of listening to things that maybe feel judgmental, but ultimately at the end of the day, coming to, um, you know, I tell people, you may not know this, Kimmy, or maybe, maybe you do. I tell people all the time when they are about to be expecting new parents, you know, my friend Kimmy, you know what her and her partner did? Well, um, her partner was in charge of all the diaper changing. And that was the job. If there was a poopy diaper, Kimmy wasn't going to change it. Kimmy carried the baby. It was now the other parent's job. And when I tell that story, let me tell you, it then happens. And the moms are constantly looking at me like, thank you. And I'm like, yeah, you think I did that by accident? And so I think there's something to the fact that you you started with that. And so again, things are getting amplified during this year. And so that has just grown in that sort of conversation about like fairness and, and is this equitable in some way, shape or form, but it's definitely a parent thing, right? Like not, we have not experienced this pandemic equally. And it's based on all the other ways in which we are different, including that not all of us are parents, not all of us are parents of young children and so on. Okay. So the kids say to you, is it us? Why, why are mm-hmm. you leaving? Like, are they jealous or are they concerned? They were just like, why? Yeah, they, I guess they didn't understand first of like, well, where are you going? Why do you need a break? Break from what? Mm-hmm. And then after mm-hmm. we talked them through it, they're like, oh. And then there's a little bit of, I think they're still processing it. Like, why yeah. is she leaving to leave? Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, what, what about your partner? Like, is there some jealousy there? I think so. Uh, there's actually a, mm, yeah, I don't know, actually. Are he they going to s- get a break of this kind in the future? <laughs> Not from us, no, because they, the children, you mean? The no, children. I meant like, is there a moment where you're going to say, hey, you know what? I had that break and it was really great. I mean, I just pumped you up and said, you're so egalitarian. And so like, no, I know. you're just going to take this break. <laughs> are you going to let, are you going to let him go away for like a week alone? Well, we were just talking about this because they're um, going to LA because we have this rental house in LA that uh-huh. he may go for spring break or something. But it's unfurnished. Um. Yeah, <laughs> but that doesn't that doesn't mean he has to stay there. I mean, there could be I mean, a hotel at this point. At this point, an empty know. house, an empty house in an urban city that is not the yeah. one that you've been living in for the last year is a vacation. So it's a win. I'm going to take it as a win. Okay, so you're going away to this place, mm-hmm. and you're going to get a, a break from the kids, from from your house, from those responsibilities, and from work. Are you nervous? Cause I'm a little scared for you. What are you going to do with all that freedom, Kimmy? I know. Well, I'm not supposed to work. Um, I was going to knit myself a sweater or something. Some, I think that's something. work. I think that's work. 
it's not. Um, I was thinking about like learning guitar or something, something with a musical instrument, possibly. Really? Because mm. I have to do, because I'm uh, like, I can't just sit. I can, I can bring a book. I could probably, you know, like I do read, but then I feel like I have to. So I need to, I need to use the time for something. <laughs> do you? I think that's the whole reflection point here. I think that's why you, you signed up for this. And, and as somebody who was contacted by this organization that then gave you this opportunity to get a break, I mentioned she cannot sit still. <laughs> She needs to work on doing nothing. Okay. I'll take that as a suggestion. <laughs> yeah, I think you don't need to learn anything new. I, I think I think if you want to read a book, awesome. But like, you know, there are people that you and I know, and I've never done it myself, who go on like on purpose. They pay somebody. They pay someone to give them housing and force them to be silent. People go on these like silent meditation retreats. I can't, I, I, it makes no sense to me. And yet it does, but I don't think I could do it. I've noticed you've never gone to a silent meditation retreat. Is there a reason? Uh, I mean, there's, so there's a difference. Silent meditation versus not doing anything. Because you could still be silent and be knitting or something. So let's just be clear. According to um, <laughs> therapists and psychologists and people in that world that you and I are not in, doing mm -hmm. nothing is actually doing something. Mm -hmm. I guess. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> See, and you just totally, you totally want to talk about something else anyway. Like, anyway, let's go. I can't. Keep going. I can't. Like, why does it, why does it, why is it somewhat frightening and we don't want to talk about like doing nothing? It's not that it's, well, I guess. So, okay. This is where I do think crafting makes me not think about other things. If I were just to sit there and not be doing something, I'll come up with 20 other things I should do. So if I actually have a task in front of me, so it's like this idea of busy work. I won't then fill it with something. Like I, I, my tendency is to fill it with something, right? Mm -hmm. If it's like, oh, I have six hours. Okay, mm -hmm. I have six hours. Let me like stack these things or let me, you know, like that will give mm -hmm. me physically something that will. So that's why crafting is a form of meditation. Mm -hmm. It's not work. What if for a week, all you did was focus on noticing your thoughts and focusing on breathing? What if the focus was to think about your thoughts? Again, I'll just come up with more lists. What's wrong with making lists? It will, be, it will create something. I will create a business. I will create. <laughs> and that would be bad? Well, then it's, that's actually, that's actually then putting more on my plate versus if I just kept myself busy. So I don't do that. Hmm. I have found that when I focus on doing nothing, it mm -hmm. is quite challenging. It's very difficult, but it has become transformative for me. 
I consider my therapist like um, a Jedi who's teaching me the way of the Jedi. And what we try and get me to do is to sit somewhere and meditate by focusing on one thing, but also while doing nothing, but noticing my thoughts. And it's fascinating. And you're making a face. And I was making a face originally. And I poo-pooed this. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. What a waste of time and energy. I do not have the privilege to just focus on my thoughts and my breath. But what it slowly does is teaches you, for me, it's been teaching me how to just pause if only to check in and see what I'm feeling, what my body's doing. Is it getting tense somewhere? Is there maybe a reason for that? It's almost mm -hmm. like training, training your gut to actually be a reasonable source of checking in about like, is this a, what is my gut feeling right now? Should I do it or should I not do it? But if you don't focus on actually learning how to listen to your gut, then you're constantly like my gut's saying nothing or I think I have to go to the restroom. And those are not the only functions of listening to your gut. And so I'm actually so excited for you to go on this break. And I challenge you, if you're willing to be challenged, to not learn something new and to maybe not read a book and to not bring knitting with you and to just see what happens when you're there. It maybe bring these things just in case it doesn't work. But I would love to see what happens when Kimmy plans no plan. What happens when there's no plan? Mm. I feel like I've done that on vacation and it frustrates me. <laughs> anyway. Oh, why does it frustrate you? Because then I'm like, I should have made a plan because I could have used this time to go to this thing. Like if you just like think about where you're going, it's like you're not utilizing the opportunity because I'm going to the, I'm going to like a nature area. So it's like, oh, I should at least plan a hike. I should at least plan a blah, 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 you know, like that kind of thing. Because then if have I. You ever, well, have you ever ended up doing something or being somewhere that was absolutely great, but by accident because you didn't plan it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you make so many plans. It means that you're only going to see and experience what you intended, but not open yourself to maybe mm. having things that you didn't plan for that might be just as exhilarating and amazing and transformative. Like, for example, in 1995, when you went on your trip to go visit student leaders at UC Santa Barbara, when you went there, did you intentionally say, I'm going to go to UC Santa Barbara and meet student organizers because those people will end up being some of my closest friends for the rest of my life. Did you go with that purpose and that intentionality and plan? No, but there was the, there was the intent of go meet people. Mm -hmm. And build so some there, kind of power and community. Something. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a, some, there wasn't just a, I'm going to just drive to a school. There was a, actually, you know, there was some intention. Mm -hmm. And yet that's exactly what happened. 
without it being so thoroughly thought through. You and I meet in 1995. And I went to that meeting not thinking I'm going to meet my mentor in life, in work, uh, my sister from another mother. Like I'm going to meet one of my best friends. That's not, that's not my plan. Maybe it had been my wish in life in general to meet at some point, the people who are going to be my people, but it wasn't the plan. Well, the same with my partner. I go to Germany. I don't think I'm going to meet anybody oh, and I meet yes. him. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then you brought him home and, and he's been there ever since. Exactly. It's 20 years this year, actually. Yes. Oh my yes. gosh. 20 see, years. Many, see, I think that the most long lasting and committed things that you do in terms of relationships with people and relationship to work and relationship to values and thoughts and ideas, you've actually done unintentionally. So I'll be curious to find out what happens when you go on your break, especially if maybe the only plan is to meet people. And maybe even if one of the people you plan to meet is yourself. I'm ready to move on. Are you? Yes. Yes, because this is not what you intended this interview to be about. So you are squirming up a storm. All right, let's move on to something a little more in your pocket of interest. Let's talk about some of the work that you have been doing recently. Your family is from Burma, um, also known as uh, Myanmar, but it's Burma. So we're going to call it Burma. And um, you also um, have been doing some work locally in the Bay Area around really trying to address um, how do we really, you know, acknowledge what's going on and move forward when it comes to these very, you know, um, violent um, attacks uh, against Chinese in particular, but Asian elders um, in the Bay Area um, and across the country uh, throughout this last year. And that's not new. These kinds of things have happened since the beginning of our uh, country's story with regards to our, you know, first immigration policies. You know, the the xenophobia um, is not something that's just particular to the pandemic. Again, more magnification of things that already exist. And while a few months ago we had an insurrection that many questioned whether or not we should or shouldn't call an attempted coup on January 6th, to certify the uh, most recent presidential election. A week later, a coup did happen uh, in Myanmar um, where democratic elections had just most recently taken place. So democracy wasn't even something that had really gotten to be tasted by everyone uh, in Burma. And um, Aung San Suu Kyi, who was the leader who um, was, you know, kidnapped essentially and put back on house arrest um, that she was in uh, for most of her life prior to that, has also had a, a questionable time, you know, in terms of um, their leadership and and different things. So I'm just setting up the scene and wanting you to just step in and let us know what have you been doing in the Bay Area? What has been happening? What is your response and what do you think people should be doing and how can folks help? And then what are your thoughts around um, the coup in Burma? And most recently, uh, a lot of reported deaths of activists who are are trying to fight against that. Um, I, I open it up to you. That's a lot of questions. <laughs> so pick whatever we, order. Yeah, maybe we start with um oh, so many things. Uh 
I guess the police and the violence and the attacks on elders, because I think what's happening is there's a lot of media attention on it now, but like you're saying, it's not anything new. And because of what's happened with COVID and kind of Trumpism and white nationalism, there had already been kind of this like anti-Asian sentiment brewing um, and attacks on Asians because of COVID, right? And then there's like anti-China stuff. There's been anti-China stuff. Um, So that's all kind of been in the air already. Uh, Most recently though, there has been a lot of focus on Chinatowns and what's happening there. And then what that has become has been talk of kind of like this kind of anti-Black talk of, oh, well, it's just those people that are coming in. And it's, you know, it's, it's like Black people that are doing this to Asians. And, and that's also not true, right? Like, I think it has happened. Yeah, of course, there's cases, but systematically, it's actually about this larger problem we have in our society, right? Um, and I think when you add COVID, um, you have loss of jobs, loss of any, you know, housing insecurity, all kinds of stuff, because our structure is not in place. Our social society is not supporting people and you know, education, any, you pick anything, healthcare, education, housing, that there are a lot of folks on the edge and they're living on the edge. And so crime is up, but that's, you know, I don't, the idea that it's just for certain communities, like crime is up because of the economic depression that we're in, right? So larger issues, um, but there's now been some vigilantism where folks are like, oh yeah, Asian people should just get guns and shoot, you know, like, shoot to kill kind of attitude. And so I think that is the wrong way to go, right? Like we shouldn't be doing that. We should think about our whole community. Um, So I've been part of a coalition of groups. So there's groups that have been working in Chinatown many, many decades um, and thinking about how to support the community. So obviously there's the direct support for the victims and the families and that type of support that needs to happen. But then there's these larger questions of like healing. And then there's these larger questions of actual having, you know, when you talk about restorative justice, like conversations with other folks. Um, Because if you then look at any other community as well, like they, there's victims there, crime, um, racism, systemic problems, right? So I think this is where we're trying to help hold the larger picture, um, but understanding that certain communities definitely feel more attacked right now. And this idea that there's been some really heinous crimes that have happened. Um, We also then see the media trying to spin it and they're saying, oh, it's because these progressive DAs that like let people off. And that's not, you know, like, I feel like people are always trying to attack or blame certain things. And it's like, well, that's not it either. Like there's a whole, there's just so many other issues to be thinking about. So in Oakland and in San Francisco, there's been organizing um, and I've just been supporting There's Again, there's like groups that have been doing this for a long, long time. There's definitely the like knee jerk reaction of folks like, oh yeah, you know, there, there's celebrities came in. They're like, here's $25,000 to help catch the culprit. And it's like, really, you want to give $25,000 that can find a black man in Oakland? Like, that's not, that's not good, right? You know, so the idea of like, how do we shift people like that from 
inc- like incarceration is not the answer. And actually, you know, they found out more about the person who attacked the elders in Chinatown. He was actually mentally unstable and he had had many encounters with people from all kinds of, you know, many different races. And so it was more, he had a mental um, health issue or he has a mental health issue and he has attacked young, old, black, white, like all kinds of folks, right? So it wasn't just Asian elders. Um, so then it goes back to, okay, mental health. Um, how do we think about that? So the shift, the work that has to happen is talking to folks to get them to see these larger f- problems. And actually we did get, um, not me, but folks in our coalition got those celebrities now to actually say, okay, here's the money and you should donate or volunteer with these community groups. So like, there's actually like a shift that had happened because people started to call them and be like, what's up? You can't just like throw people in jail. That's not the answer. Um, so that's one bucket. I don't know if you want to talk more about anything in particular in that. I mean, I think what's interesting there is, you know, just who gets to, who gets to have particular stories and narratives about their communities defined by them? versus who is constantly having the story and the narratives defined for them. You know, I'm thinking back to when it's a, a white male who has a gun or is enacting any kind of violence towards a massive group of people or a few people, it doesn't really matter the number. We see them as a lone wolf. They did it by themselves. We're not gonna say all white men, all cis white men are like this. Um, we're not even gonna say like they should be put in jail um, because of course, right away, not only are they a lone wolf, but then of course comes up that they were mentally unstable. So we are not allowed to ever have particular groups of people ever be vilified or put together as a whole group of folks that really need to be looked at in a particular way and have one universal solution to how to address mm-hmm. that problem. But if you are in a marginalized community, there's no way you can ever say anything about mental health issues. It's a whole group of people. You are a representative of the entire black population or the entire Latinx population or the entire Asian American population. And it, you can never be alone. So, so there's, it's just so fascinating to me how we frame particular people, places, actions, and communities in such a way that there is no equity there. There was no equality there in terms of how we get to call things in people and how we're able to see things. Also, you know, what I heard in there that was fascinating is that, you know, we're trying to look for systemic causes, but we're looking at the wrong systems, right? Like, let's look at the, uh, you know, criminal justice system and note, oh, see, it's because you let out you know, mm-hmm. folks from incarceration, you freed people. And that's why they caused more harm instead of the institution of lacking mental health support and the institution of, you know, an entire administration calling this particular virus and constantly calling to the table that the mm-hmm. issue with our economy, that the issue with the pandemic, that the issue with our power in the world is because we're in constant competition with one country, China, and they are the villain for everything. And so we don't call out that system. We don't call out the system of white supremacy that comes from the hands of the administration and the highest and biggest microphone and megaphone in the country. We don't do that, but we we go to the lowest hanging fruit. And I guess what's what I'm curious about that I want to ask you is, why is that? 
why is our, our gut reaction to things to look at the individual and the person instead of everything that comes with them, all their attachments, all of the, all of the things that made them who they are and that they're trying to then influence and make like, why is that? Why do we start with the, with the person instead of the system? Like, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, so, I mean, I think, so I've been to a number of like discussions about this, right? Like, why is it that people have this mentality about poor people or like the idea of a welfare queen or about like this, you know, Mm -hmm. so it happened because there were these conservative people in, I think it was the forties or fifties, right. That started to see these ideas of the rugged individualism. And like, it's all about pull yourself up from your own bootstraps. It's not about society supporting you. But when you Mm -hmm. actually look at what happened in the forties and the fifties and the sixties, right the new deal, like all these things that government actually helped people buy homes, right? Actually good paying jobs, healthcare, all these things. But then it it got reserved for white people, not for black people, not for people of color, not for migrants, not for workers, right? Like it became this like separate thing. And so this is where all these policies, all these things that impact us right now were all birthed way long ago by these conservative folks, right, who just kind of um, wanted to pit us against one another, right, so that it's the poor's fault that they're poor, you know, and it's like people who decide not to work. It's not the fact that there's no good paying jobs or that the minimum wage is so low you can't live off of it. Like, it's their fault, right? So this idea of blaming poor people, blaming migrants, like all of that, xenophobia, like all of that, was kind of wrapped around this idea of um, neoliberalism, right? And this idea that the working class, like workers and people that actually make up a majority of our society are trying to drain it. You know, like this, those ideas that the poor are like siphoning all this money from government or taxes are, you know, misspent because they're helping the poor. Like if you really look at it, the majority of our money from taxes goes to the military and the army and all this other stuff. And when you think of, I mean, you actually look at social services, it's like 1%, 2%. It's like these small, small slivers. But the narrative out there is that it's the poor, it's the undocumented, it's these low wage workers that are sucking from our society, right? But when you really, really look at it, it's Walmart. It's these huge companies that take tax breaks that, rely on welfare to support their workers because they only give them seven dollars an hour right like there's all these things and at some point in time though those corporations got tax breaks got like all the you know like they're actually the ones on welfare or like you know this idea of like taking money from the government they're completely getting you know saved the airline industry all these corporations right so it's all I mean, it's I believe Bernie Sanders, <laughs> Bernie Sanders' political campaign was based on like, you know, we have socialism for corporations and the rich. What's, you know, like, yes, I'm a socialist and I believe in socialism for the people. And by the way, what we have right now is socialism for the rich and socialism yes. for corporations. And they, they get all the benefits. It, and the they're state. just like, communism's bad, socialism's bad. And it's like, really? Because the idea of socialism and communism is that nobody owns anything, right? Like it's about everybody, everyone's equal. And it's like, why is that? Why is that wrong? 
that people should have health care and education and housing? Like what? You know, in terms of the principles. I don't right, know, you know. Right. So it's like But see so the, this 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 is the quintessential China versus the United States narrative though. This is the East versus the West. And we also just had, you know, uh Lunar New Year and Chinese New Year. And what's fascinating to me was like it wasn't until maybe a year ago that someone really explained to me Chinese New Year and that this is like everybody's birthday. This is the year that you celebrate everybody's birthday. Everybody's, you know, when it's new, when it's Lunar New Year, it's the epic party because you get to celebrate the new year for everyone. It's a collective birthday. And so there isn't like the one-off birthday. It's like, yeah, okay, you have a birthday, but Lunar New Year, right? This like collectivism. And when you think about even it on a medicinal level, you know, Eastern medicine is holistic. It isn't your bleeding here out of your nose. We should stop the bleeding and just look at the nose. And we're only going to focus on the nose. It's let's, let's look at your whole body to figure out why is this coming out of your nose? A holistic source approach. Whereas Western medicine is it, we're only fixing the nose. We're only focused on the nose. In fact, we divide up our medical practice to be siloed and separate. And so this isn't just a, a, a law and order conversation. This isn't mm -hmm. just an economic social welfare conversation. This is a values conversation, like very different ways of what we want and how we're going to get there and how we're going to get there together. And when we look at the pandemic, who is okay right now? Who is partying together? Who is going to school together? Who's at concerts together? It's the East, not the West. And so it's, it's very interesting to me how like we're trying to like solve problems here that others have already figured out how to solve. And yet we're pointing the fingers and scapegoating folks and doing these kinds of things. And, and then you have Burma. And then you have that fight for this. That's the space in between. You know, like I don't want this like totalitarian, you know, um, fascist and military led society. I, I think I want democracy, but I maybe not. I, I don't know if it's going to work here because every place that it supposedly works, it ain't really working now, is it? So it's this very interesting time where this divide between, you know, values and ways that we operate. No one's really looking too great right now. And I'm not really sure, like, what do you think should be happening in Burma? If you could magically, in your Kimmy, I'm going to go and fix it because I can do this way. What, what needs to happen in, in Burma? Is, is democracy or freedom in some way, shape or form, at least safety, possible in Burma ever in your lifetime? And what would it take? Oh, that's a big question too. I mean, I think what's, so they don't need a military dictatorship, but that's all they've had. So they've mm -hmm. only had that. So they were a British colony until the forties. And then there was Aung San Suu Kyi's father, like was part of like freeing them from the British, but then he was assassinated. Right. And then, so pretty much then from now it's been a military dictatorship. So you need that to shift. And they did have, they've had several elections, right? Many elections. Um, they had a little bit of democracy for the last few years. And now the military has taken back control. So I think, 
I don't, I don't know the country internal politics enough to be like, oh yeah. So if you just took away the, I mean, yes, take away the military, allow democracy. That's one thing. But I think then within that democracy, there are problems. And then this is what you're mentioning about the Rohingya and the most like Muslim folks basically that are in Burma have been, they're basically, they're non-citizens. They have no status and that's part of the problem. So there's things there around migration and um, who has status or not. And even the country's name. So Burma is only one of, there's 13 like states in Burma. Burma is, um, there's, is only one. And so this idea of like, do you call it Myanmar? Myanmar is what the military said we should call it because Burma is only one of the states. But then the military says to call it that. So there's like a debate because mm-hmm. then it's like, you shouldn't say Burma because it's only one of the states, but really Myanmar is also a military. Thing. Anyway, so it's a little complicated. Um, but yeah, I think the idea of there shouldn't be a military, like the military needs to step away and that they don't know any different though, because it's been decades and decades. And I think that's the part. And I mean, what hurts my heart is, you know, in the U S we were talking about, well, what happens if there's a coup and, you know, we need to do these things. And now I'm seeing Burma do it right now. Like I see the people in the streets and I see the, you know, transportation workers and, you know, and those were all the conversations we had in December about the U S we were having the workshops on what happens, like, how do we respond to a coup? You need massive disobedience. You need, you know, you have to be ungovernable. You have to like stop public transportation, stop school, you know, like stop society basically. And now every day when I look at what's happening in Burma, I'm like, they're doing it. That's exactly like what we were preparing ourselves for in the U.S., right? And so I was like, ah. Um, So, and the fact that I've actually never been to Burma because I didn't want to support the government. Because when you go as a tourist, you give money to the government. And actually they had a thing before where you had to actually like exchange exchange money with the government, um, like a thousand dollars. There was some amount that you had to give to the government for you to like go visit. And I just fundamentally could never do it. Cause I'm like, I don't want to give money to them. And so now I'm almost 50 and I've never been able to go, you know, because the military has been there. And, you know, for me, it's like point of privilege. Like I can choose not to go. I'm not there, but it's just, it dawned on me the fact that it's been my entire freaking life that I've never been able to go. Um, and so anyway, I, that's, that's another kind of heavy thing. Um, but yeah, I don't know if there's an easy answer because it's been that way for so long, but also it is, I think it is as simple as the military just needs to step back and step away. But the question then is who has the power to make them step away. And because it's been decades and decades, everybody, you know, like they're, they're, ingrained into the whole society like how do you just disappear the military is this why you're so busy all the time (laughs) like no i'm serious like look you can't you can't go visit the place that your parents are from that your parents migrated here from you can't go see where your ancestors are from because you cannot justify going and visiting there because it would then mean that you are giving some sort of financial support to a 
political and government system that you cannot fundamentally support. So is the alternative that you work your butt off to make sure that that doesn't become what you're, where you live, where your home is like, and is that privilege what then makes you work so tirelessly all the time when you see things happening, you go into, I must fix it mode. Like, do you feel like this is the kind of work that prevents the coup? This is the lesson to be learned from that. If we don't do this kind of work, this is what will happen. I mean, I don't know if it's that extreme in the U.S. I mean, I guess just from this last month or two, it has been, but I, you know, it, it's how did they get to a military bad. dictatorship? Like you, you talked about the colonialism aspect, but then there's a moment in between there where you then are, you know, how do you go from being a colony to then being, you know, uh, independent on your own and then not continuing to do what the colonizer taught you to do. I mean, this is what's happening in Rwanda, you know, like it's what happened in the genocide of Rwanda. Mm -hmm. It was the, you know, they were colonized as well. Then they weren't colonized. And then the white supremacy that goes with that colonization played itself out. And it is still not healed. The same thing in South Africa. I mean, we have example after example, and that includes here the United States being a formal colony of Britain, right? So like mm. it, it aren't these aren't you know connections that don't make any sense but this part in between before mm -hmm. before the coup before the military dictatorship but after the colonialism there that doesn't just jump you know so things happen to bridge that gap and i think what we had seen in the last few years or maybe even decades if you've really been keeping your finger on the pulse for a minute this is maybe how that happens. And we are in that choice point, if you will, to decide, do we just let that be an inevitability? Or do mm -hmm. we say, no, that's maybe not how we want this story to end or continue to go next? I mean, the, the, the <laughs> other thing that's connective here is that you just mentioned that when we do pay tax taxes here in the United States, you know, the biggest beneficiary of that social benefit is the military. I mean, we're so close to it. We're so close to it all the time. We're like, you know, it's like those, those moments where mm. someone's about to fall off of the platform in a subway or the BART system, right? And here comes the train and they're just like barely teetering on the edge. Like, oh, let me just put up my hands and kind of like lean back so that I don't fall over there and get hurt. But I feel like that's where we have been in the United States for before. Our lifetime. You said 1940s and 1950s. That's 80 years in the making. That's before mm -hmm. we've been around that this, this has been in, in planning. And we're mm -hmm. just trying to change our lifetime to reverse the course. Yeah, you need a break. <laughs> we all need a break. Can we go with you? Can you no, just take the points? <laughs> Damn it. That's right. That is the point. Yeah. I mean, were you really preparing for that in December? There were really meetings to talk about like when the coup. Yes. Happened. I was running workshops every, like I ran multiple workshops to explain what are our options? Like what, how do we prepare for a coup? I have a PowerPoint slide deck. I was doing presentations all over the place. I talked to the unions. I, you know, I presented. Yeah. That was what we're shifting. We're getting people ready. 
because we, you couldn't wait. You couldn't just wait and be like, oh, wait, we're in a coup. You know, like you had to talk to people about like, well, what does that mean? So for a month, we were doing workshops and talking and preparing. What, what do you think then and make of these, these first, you know, couple of days of the Biden administration, you know, like today's the 22nd, we're a month and a couple of days in, you know, it's within the first hundred days, but it's really only the first 30 days. Are you feeling hopeful? Are you feeling to Biden's campaign slogan? Are you feeling better? Um, Or are you feeling disappointed? And what happens when we have disappointed feelings of the better instead of the worse? Like, where do we go from Mm -hmm. here? No, for sure. I think it's better. Obviously, we could not have a second term of Trump. But um, and what's interesting is I I know a lot of people who are being hired by it, who are either on the transition team or who are now being hired to work in the White House. So I feel like there is hope. There's, you know, this idea that Bernie Sanders is the economic committee chair. Like, that's huge. Um, immigration, you know, I think there are places where it will, of course, be better. Is it going to be the best? Probably not. He right? didn't promise <laughs> that. He said build back better. He didn't say build back best. Okay. It was a different thing. So, I mean, I feel like, so it's given all of us like just breathing space and there are now glimmers of at least trying to I mean, we definitely have to fix all those things that got broken, right? Basically, um, there's going to be a lot of fixing. And then hopefully there'll be some shifts. I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic. (laughs) So, I mean, I I just feel like it's it's just a different ballgame when at least there's some semblance of common decency, right? Um, And that, like I was just saying, like, there are rational people in leadership that are not reactionary and not completely absurd. You know, under the Trump administration, I feel like there was a resolve that went across the country for a lot of folks who um, are in marginalized communities or who, um, you know, hold hold things you know to task um and so the last four years you expected nothing you hoped that there wouldn't be more harm Mm -hmm. but you expected no help right so you knew not to expect that anything helpful was going to happen and you just hoped that things wouldn't be so horrible um much to the 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 comment that I've heard most of my life when I've tried to you know demand and get uh, political power, I'm regularly met with the phrase, "Well, you can't get water from a rock." And so under the Trump administration, I was like, "Okay, you're a rock. I'm not going to expect water. And since you're a rock, I know if you're thrown at me, it's going to cause some some damage and some harm." What do we do when it's the Biden administration, and like? do we, can we now expect things, but when they don't show up, then what do we do? You know, like we've, 
we've, we, we are so harmed. We are so hurt right now that I fear we can't even afford the pain that sometimes, no, often kinds, times is associated with healing, you know, mm. healing is a process by which there is pain in healing because you have to move through yet another part. And that movement through that change again is inevitably painful, if not uncomfortable. There is discomfort. And so we have so much to heal from. I worry that any little bit of harm is just going to be too much for us to take anymore. And we haven't healed from the pandemic yet. We've had no time to heal from Trump. This is the thing. Things have been so bad with the pandemic that we've had no time to just really take a longer breath to exhale and be okay with this change in leadership. I mean, it's been 30 days that Biden's been in office and I want to hold him accountable like he's been there for 30 years because I'm so angry and I'm so sad and I'm so frustrated. So should we just expect nothing from the federal government at all times and continue to just bolster the mutual aid and the community work? Like our earlier podcast interviews were about if we need to learn anything, it's that things can't be so far away from us. We need mm -hmm. to be producing things locally. We need to be making things locally. We need to know about people who live in our neighborhoods and what they're, they're their problems and what is harming them and how we can help them. That's part of how we get to this black and brown, you know, moment and, and, and even, you know, um, and, and black and Asian, you know, moment of divisiveness, right? Like if we can't ask folks, Oh, you, you need mental health um, access and you need help with that. If we don't even know that, cause we're not even talking to our neighbors, we can't come up with those solutions. So yeah, I'm just like, what do we do now? What do we do now that the, the people in power have changed? But like you said, we know many of them. If things don't happen now, and it's your friends, it's your allies who are in there who can make change and they still don't, because maybe institutionally they can't. What do we do now? Mm. I think we have to continue what we've always done. <laughs> There's like... It's the same. It's like we have to organize. We have to inspire. We have to like help. I think it's like this balance of help in the immediate, like what are people's immediate needs and have hold this to what end, right? Mm -hmm. And is it just about pure survival at this moment? Is it survival of the planet? Is it for our children? Is it whatever? But I just, I don't see it different. Like, I feel like it's the same thing. Like we just still need to continue talking to people we still need to continue the organizing we still need to continue relationships because it's all about the relationships of people and what they have with each other right and it's like we can't let that go and it's like it changed under covid so then you started to talk more to people online and i feel like it actually helped because you know there are some workshops i went to there's like three thousand people online you know like listening to movement generation or 3000 people that, that like attended this other thing. And it's just like, okay, that wouldn't have happened before, you know, before like COVID forced us into the virtual space, but it also created an opportunity for people who were working or who like translation or just dis had a disability and couldn't physically go to something. Right. Like I remember when we had physical meetings, you might have 30, 40 and be like, Oh, that's a good turnout. 
30 or 40, right? But then online, you can have a workshop or a discussion and it's like two, 3,000, right? And, it, and I feel like it's, get, you know, so while COVID's been super sucky, I'm not going to say it's been great. There have been these moments and of like, oh, you can't engage people. Like, you know, you can't get deep, but at least you're able to have some, like something, right? Like, so it's a mixture. It's like, how do we, how do we go back to the in-person, which we definitely need. I think people need in-person, but then how do we continue to engage more and more people, right? Because I think the internet and all that, like all these people just like now are in like this place of, oh yeah, I just, you know, signed on that petition and now I'm done. Like that was my activism. And it's like, well, is it? So can you know, how do we like get them to do the, the next thing? And, but that's the same thing. That's been the same problem or been our task, right? As organizers forever, engaging people, talking to them, getting them to do something like it's, it's just, it's the same. So even though the container has shifted a bit or it's gotten cloudy or there's like some extra things to organize people around, the fundamental thing is the same. So I just, I don't see it as anything different. Well, now I just got tired because (laughs) if the solution is the same, regardless, if, if, if the solution was to organize and relationship build and to continue to look for where the power imbalances and then fight for more equitable power and more social justice was the solution before Trump, is the solution during Trump, and is the solution after Trump, then I guess my question really is about how do we sustain this? How does one sustain doing this all the time? Because I've heard you and others like you, you know, like people who are in leadership positions who organize for political power. It's we just got to tell people what to do next, what to do next. We just got to tell people the next thing you do. So you vote today, you um, check on your neighbors tomorrow, you go to the post office um, uh, on Thursday, on Friday, you tip big on Saturday, you do this like And it needs to be sustained because what this sort of political moment under Trump or under Biden or with the pandemic reminds me of, it reminds me of January in the United States at a local gym where everybody looks at themselves in the new year and goes, oh, I have to do something different. So you sign up to the gym, you make these resolutions, I'm going to be different. You do it for a good solid month, maybe a good solid week, and then it starts to slip again. And you're right back to the next year going, things got to change. I've got to do something different. But you know who doesn't have that conversation? You know who looks in the mirror on January 1st and says, well, what are we going to do this year? The people who maintain the habit of change and are constantly figuring, I am dedicated to to this. Now, this isn't a diet. This is a lifestyle. This is a way I'm going to value my life and my body all the time. And then when the year ends, you get to think, well, what's the new thing I'm going to learn? What's the new thing I'm going to do? Or you go to a retreat and you go, what's the new skill I'm going to attain now? Because I need all these things. Like I look at you sometimes and I go, I know who you are. You're a Swiss army knife and you are constantly trying to figure out how can I put a new tool in this bag of tools so that I am more prepared for anything and I can actually build on the strength of the tools that I already know and I already have in me. And I appreciate that modeling and I appreciate all of that. I just wonder how we can start to use 
these things that have been used against us to hold them differently, to make them empowering for us, right? Like, why aren't we calling masks and ventilators, you know, the China ventilator? Why aren't we calling the vaccine, you know, the China vaccine, you know, like Britain, Britain, I don't know if you heard about this today, Britain, and actually it started last week was up in arms. Like, do we have to call it a UK variant? Can we call it something else variant? Can we give it a number? Can it be COVID-19.4? You know, because they understand that how mm-hmm. you frame by what you call these things that are the villain and are yep. being portrayed as the harm doer yep. is how you get to, you know, 1940s to 2021. That that crease, that groove in the line of this is the villain, this is the villain, this is the villain, this is bad, this is bad, becomes so clear that you can't see anything else. It's hard to imagine anything else. So that's what I want to ask you. What would you start to call some of the solutions that come out of this mm. to liken it to counter the narrative of what has been portrayed as the villain. Like, should we start to use the word socialized or public more? Should we start to use red and gold in more places? Like, should we put everything that has this like multicolored black, brown, you know, like what do we do to culturally continue to counter the narrative of who is the solution? Where does the solution comes from? Where does the care come from versus where the harm comes from? Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, so many big questions. I mean, I, I feel like this is... I'm sorry, this is the year of big questions. This is... The, <laughs> I, I feel like this is where... Um, the example popping in my head is like when Van Jones did the Love Army. Like that, it was like, okay army, but love, but, or caring across generations or any of these campaigns that now it's like love and care and hope, like people are trying to um, take that stance of like, it's not about just reaction and like stop doing these things or don't do this. It's actually like, so what is it we want to hold up? So love, care, uh, relationships, right? Like, I feel like folks have been trying to do that to to reset people and this even this idea of like and you said it multiple times like take a breath breathe like take a moment um reflection like it's it's all shifting us away from just like scarcity mode and panic mode and you know like rapid response and mm-hmm. um so I, I i mean i can't think of what the thing the magic thing is going to be right now but you just so, named that it's already <laughs> happening it's, it's like happening. already happening because people it. identify i mean i think this idea of like story-based strategy people realizing that the story we tell like that's what people remember they don't remember facts or figures they remember the story right they remember the story they heard about the person or you know the elderly woman in chinatown people remember it's an elderly person that got pushed down right like it's the story and like how things get framed so i feel like there's been this resurgence or whatever, this new kind of organizing model of stories, mm-hmm. using stories to like shift um, and thinking about what kind of stories we tell. So I feel like I've been trying to do that narrative shift even, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's hopefully, I think the 1%, you know, the 99%, 1%, that was, that was a shift. Right. right. Wall right. Street people, people associating themselves to the 99% and that there was power in that instead of just always being like, 
oh yeah, it's only about the wealthy, like people starting to identify as 99%. I feel like that was a culture shift. Um, I don't know what the next thing will be. I'm hoping in something about the climate though and the earth, because that's for shit. (laughs) We need something there. (laughs) Um, I mean, that's our origin story. That's our origin story. And that's the story of how, this chaos and this catastrophe began as well in that origin story in terms of the proximity and the distance we have put between ourselves and our relationship with the land and our relationship with the planet. It is the most strained and removed relationship that we have that talk about, talk about somebody who really is an extrovert the earth is the like biggest extrovert I know. And we have, we have put the earth into a situation where, you know, it's, it's not even possible for the earth to get energy from being alone. It's not capable of, Mm. of being an introvert. It cannot, it cannot, it was not made to be an introvert. It was not made to be alone. And it's almost as if it's trying to speak to us, like the planet is trying to tell us, if you want me to be alone, I will. <laughs> if yeah. you want me to be alone, I will. And the that planet means- will survive us. Yes. <laughs> we yes, won't survive. Yes. yes, right. And and that has been an earlier narrative. I mean, there was a whole campaign strategy around that, you know, like I will survive. Will you? You know, and and that coming from, you know, this imagined character that the earth is speaking and telling us, will you? But that narrative campaign was created by big corporations who were trying not to be placed Mm. in the story as being responsible. That Mm. we are here to save us because how dare we hold the real institutions and keepers of power accountable (laughs) to be there. And so I think it's, it's been a very interesting year where many of the lessons are just a repeat of earlier lessons and needing to remember them. This has really been a year of memory and how we need to, you know, memorialize things and remember things and have them be a constant reminder all around us. And so to that end, we began this podcast by asking you to remember a previous time that made you feel the way we were starting to feel at the beginning of this moment a year ago. In fact, my partner uh, just said to me this week, do you know what happened this week? This week you went to Atlanta. And that's when I thought I actually brought home COVID in retrospect. Mm. And we were remembering that this particular week in mid, almost late February, were some of the last trips and last gatherings and last moments together that we had before this shutdown moment. And now we are at the year. And thinking into the future, to your future version of yourself, or because you have children, and I know that so much of what you do is about what you're leaving for them, imagining that maybe your children someday or gosh, your grandchildren, this is weird. (gasps) Your great grandchildren, those generations into the future are going to be able to hear or read your words and your guidance right now. And that you will be able to remember as well. How did you get through this last year? What did you do this last year that you would like to remember or pass on to the, your, you know, future generations 
of how you get through these moments where everything feels impossible, where death is all around you and, and there doesn't look like there's a solution. And the people who are supposed to maybe help don't look like they're interested in it. How did you get through this? And what do you want to remember about this time? Mm. Yeah. I think, how do I want to remember this? Or what's the story that you yeah. want to tell yourself about this time? I mean, I actually, for us, it actually, it was hard, but I don't think it was that hard. Like we, my family tends to be more on the introvert side anyway. So actually I feel like they pretty much enjoyed being pretty much like it was okay. Like we, I don't feel like we had that hard a time and we definitely had our fights. We've definitely been frustrated with one another, but I do. Think I remember that, tissue gate. It even had yes. a name. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I feel like we, you know, we enjoy having conversation I and mean, people go off to their corners, not to say we're enjoying each other all the time, but they're, you know, at least once or twice a week, we come out, talk to each other, have good conversation, we laugh. So I do feel like we were able to kind of ride this. And by having more time together, it was actually, you know, when would we ever have this time? Um, so I do feel like there's that. And the social interactions we are able to maintain through video through zoom and you know we have our network of friends and our children have some friends you know like little bubbles of pods if you will um that there's been some connections and maintaining that so yeah i feel just that we're really lucky you know we're lucky that we have space we have outside space we were able to get a dog the dog brought a whole nother part to our lives, energy, exercise. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's any just one thing. I feel like we came out okay. I hope. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, w- we've lost folks though. And I feel like I've been to many Zoom weddings and many Zoom funerals. Um, and that was hard. But And how did you get through those funerals? Were you knitting? Were you learning to play a new instrument in the middle of the funeral? For my uncle, I made his memory book. That kept me busy. Collected hundreds of photos, got quotes, made a little book for him, for his family. Um, Yeah, I mean, so yeah, I still feel like those things are ways that then make me not think. I think for me, my meditation is stopping myself from thinking. It's like a different, I don't know if that makes sense. Well, I mean, I have recently learned that there are three ways to deal with crisis. The first way is to just completely shut down Like you just completely shut down, you disassociate, Mm -hmm. you completely go to another place to get through that moment. Option two is usually the only one we really know and talk about, and it's called fight or flight. Mm -hmm. So we either start to fight and and with people, places and things because we're just in nothing but scarcity mind frame Mm -hmm. or 
or we flight and we're just like pack the car we got to get out of here and you're just constantly like running away like oh you want to talk to me about something i don't want to talk about things i'm going to leave this mm-hmm. relationship i'm done we're breaking up right so fight or flight complete shutdown but then there's a third mm-hmm. and i have never heard about this third until recently and i think maybe this is you i know it's definitely me sometimes but i think it might be you which is that you move through it with it and you transform it Mm. that you say okay this feels not so great this feels awkward what can i do with it i'm not going to fight it i'm not going to leave it and i'm not going to disassociate from it but i'm going to transform it and it's going to transform me and we are going to move through things together and i feel like you basically keep busy with intention it's not just running in circles. That might be the fight or flight. That might even be the, the shutdown, but that it has an intention. It has a purpose. And even if that purpose is to stay busy, to give you calm, it has that intentionality to it. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's in us doing the thing that's muscle memory or so mundane that in doing that, that's how we're able to daydream, right? It's like, we miss that. In fact, there was a recent article that I read that that's the thing that we're missing the most right now, that idle time, that mm. daydreaming time when you're in the commute to work and you're like, oh, I mm-hmm. missed that exit because you were dreaming because this mm-hmm. is a common, you know, I know how to get from point A to point B sort of allows me to dream. For me, it's like in the shower or exercising, I can get into a zone where I can daydream, right? And so we're missing that muscle memory. I just do this all the time stuff to allow Mm -hmm. us to dream and imagine or just have a thought come into our mind. You know, meditation doesn't have to be breathing and sitting still. It could be peeling a banana and just noticing the sound and the feeling of the peel coming off the banana. You know, like there's many different ways to do it. And I feel like when I think about the things you like to do for you as hobbies and craft, they are the same to your organizing work, taking things that don't fit and making them fit, taking things that had one purpose and repurposing them, taking things that are broken and piecing them back together to make something beautiful out of it, despite its broken edges and its potential coarse, uh, coarse, you know, dangerous moments that could cut you, you know, with your mosaics or with your leather work or the constant, you know, my God, if I see another post about this used to be a shirt and now it's a dress and tomorrow it'll be a bag. Like I, I it's just like a constant, you know, reinvention again the wish tree the wish tree the wish what's the wish tree with a wish tree we did as an art piece for the anti-asian anti-black like the uh an art piece during those actions so that people could write their hopes and wishes so again to like move away from not to ignore but to get people to think so what's next yes we need healing yes we need to think about what's happening and so this idea of the wish tree was Let's have people write down their hopes as we move into this new year. Because Lunar New Year, it was you know the the space to have people come together. Um, we had these long red ribbons that people could tie to the trees, and the ribbons actually were the scraps left from when I made five hundred heart capes for youth when they did this big action um, <laughs> to get police out of schools. The youth wanted heart capes. And so I made a bunch of heart capes for them. And then I had all these scraps and I was like, what can I do with these? And I made all the ribbons for the hope tree or the wish tree. So the wish tree 
had an appearance in Oakland and one in San Francisco and people wrote their little wishes and it was a good visual for the background and people were able to, um, you know, have something that they could do in the moment. Um, however small, but something to help give them something to think about for the next phase. So I do think I'm this last person that you just said. (laughs) Yeah, I think you might be, you might be. And with that, then I think that if I were to take everything that you just said and put it in the shortest, smallest little sentence of what to remind yourself of what you did and what to pass on to your family members of how you get through this moment is it doesn't matter if it's real or figurative, but you plant the tree and you water it. You plant the trees and you water them. All the trees, literal, political, poetic, figurative, and you make sure that they are watered so that they can fruit and so that they can then feed us and we can continue to feed it. And so I appreciate meeting you in 1995 and unbeknownst to me, taking a tree home with me um, and seeds. having it be the, the seeds. Well, no, I think it was a tree. It wasn't that small. Um, and I, I, I appreciate this year that you've shared with me and these stories that we have planted here um, and that hopefully someday we can look back on them and others can learn from them and can remember that, we have been doing this kind of work, if not us as individuals, that people we know and we as a people have been doing this kind of work for a very long time. And that that's actually our purpose. That's our job is to, you know, protect the land and each other. I have to mention Seed the Vote. Did we talk about Seed the Vote recently? So We talked about Seed the Vote in a few previous podcast that that was the project that you were working on to you know build political power to change the recent elections but is there something else that you want to say about it since you seem to be really into trees and seeds yes no i just want to mark this historic event because at the end of it all yes we got trump out but we got over eight thousand volunteers to do fifty thousand volunteer shifts and that's a lot like in just a that few months huge. it's huge yes. and like i was saying we never covid shifted us to digital and it blew it all up because our goal was 100 people we're like oh maybe we get 100 people to do stuff in other states we got eight thousand people to support work in pennsylvania arizona florida georgia we got i think it was 400 people went to door knock in georgia like it's just crazy. Like, how? and that's how that change happened. That's how the massive historic change in Georgia that didn't just affect this election, but will affect elections to come. Yes. Happened. See the vote. Just want to put that out there. See the vote. Amazing. But, but it, it's, it's the same thing. And, and, you know, there's a phrase that is not an, an old phrase. You know, the idea of you can't see the forest through the trees. And if the pandemic has also done anything because of that distance and that zoom out that we've had to do and literally use tools like zoom, you, how can you not see the forest now? How can you not see the forest now through the trees? It's so clear. And Um, people had time to actually look. I think, you know, people were home. More people watch news. More people are paying attention. Like 
that's the thing. Like we never in our lifetime will we just have a year where you just can just observe, right? Like actually. But now wait a minute, Kimmy, wait a minute, Kimmy, because this is, this is making me have weird feelings because what you're trying to say is that maybe the pandemic was a good thing. It's not that it was a good thing. You transform it into (laughs) Mm. (laughs) what, what were the good points of it? Okay. (laughs) Good pieces of it. Not to say that, but it, it shifted. It also made people realize who are essential workers, grocery store, farm worker, like who's really, really needed. Do you need all those white collar workers? I don't know. Do they need to be in an office? I don't know. but I sure need my groceries and I sure need the farm workers and I sure need toilet paper. So just saying. Yeah. Just so happens that toilet paper also comes from trees. I'm seeing this full circle, full circle, full, full. You've been listening to been there, done that your pandemic survival podcast sponsored by the new economy coalition, a membership-based network representing the solidarity economy movement in the United States. Visit NEC at neweconomy.net. Until next time, I'm your host, Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human.